So if you have your Bibles, um, let's go to Hebrews 2, and I will read. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received is just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, as by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with the glory and honor and put everything under their feet. And putting everything under them, God left nothing that is no subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom, through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death we might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason we had to be made like him, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. How significant do you feel? What value? do you place on human life? The professor of science, C.E.M. Jode, uh, put it like this when he said, man is nothing but fat enough for seven bars of soap, iron enough for one medium-sized nail, sugar enough for seven cups of tea, lime enough to whitewash one chicken coop, phosphorus enough for one dose of salts, potash enough to explode one toy crane, that's something that I'm not advising the children to do, um, and sulfur enough to rid one dog of fleas. Well, that's one way of looking at things, isn't it? How valued do you feel by that description? Is that all there is? The, the collective cash value of those elements wouldn't even pay for a family meal at Five Guys, but we, we understandably kick 
against those sort of descriptions, don't we? That totalizing description of our worth and purpose. We feel deep down worth more than that. We've got gifts, we're creative. We have care that we want to give and receive. We're not just chemical elements. But then there's the opposite error, isn't there, of having an overinflated view of ourselves, of uh, the, the universe centering on me, on I. It's my agenda, my needs. And we wrestle, don't we, with both those feelings of insignificance and longings for greatness. And that identity wrestling match is something explored throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New and especially here in the letter of Hebrews, the, the pastor here writing this letter wants his readers and us to know that we don't wrestle alone. There is an amazing answer to our longings for significance and glory because, as we've seen right at the start of chapter 1, God has spoken decisively to us in his Son, Jesus Christ. And last week, as we looked throughout chapter 1, Jesus is portrayed as absolutely unique and majestic. He is presented to us as the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. He's superior even to the angels, the most powerful beings these Jewish Christians could imagine, angels who were involved in communicating God's law to Moses. Uh, we read that in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2. And then Paul picks that up in Galatians 3.19, which is why there's that uh, verse there, verse 2, for since the message spoken through angels was binding, if they were involved in communicating the law even to Moses, but even so much more, how powerful is Jesus? These angels worship him in chapter 1. He, they do what he says, verse 7. They're not in charge of creation as Jesus is. And so chapter 1 gives us this picture of Jesus, an inspiring picture of Jesus, the Son of God. We can speak of Jesus as God with a human face. And then when we come to chapter 2, we see Jesus' humanity, which we'll look at more deeply today. God with a human face. And this mind-blowing reality that the eternal Son of God became one of us, well, our feelings of insignificance and our longings for greatness and our meaning, therefore, is not only challenged by Jesus, but fully satisfied in him, as we'll see as we go through this passage. But how well are we listening? And the jokers in the congregation go, pardon, um, if you wanted a cheap pun, but how well are we listening? The pastor of the Hebrews is concerned. We must pay, look at verse 1, we must pay most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. It's a heartfelt warning. It's not a high-handed, hot-headed telling off. It's a warning not just for us, but for, for people who aren't even here, who need to hear. Even the pastor includes himself using that collective pronoun, we. Together, we are to pay careful attention. Well, to what? Well, specifically, it's the salvation that Jesus brings, his words here in Scripture, in the pages of the Bible as we read and study them. And we can be confident, we're told, that we have the true, authentic, and reliable message of salvation because this is the message that was first announced by the Lord. See that in verse 3. The first announced by the Lord Jesus and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Now, in that, 
the writer here is saying that's a reference to the apostles, the eyewitnesses who met Jesus, who heard him teach, and they saw him doing miraculous signs. And interestingly, the miracles that Jesus did were signs of his power and divinity, yet many people who saw them weren't convinced, even by the signs. So in John 6, we read about the feeding of the 5,000, and and then people um, after that, Jesus started teaching the meaning of this sign as his identity, that they needed to believe on him, that they needed to feed on him by trusting him, and the crowd did not like that message. They started to turn away. They grumbled. They moved on. They didn't like what they heard. And at Grace Church, we want to encourage each person here, wherever you are on that spectrum of belief to unbelief, we want you to be able to read and learn carefully from the Bible. Don't settle for what you want to hear would be a challenge. If you have questions, please ask them. Seek out good friends who can discuss them with you. Uh, Be patient as we try to answer those questions. Let's help each other be careful listeners. And the writer here wants each of us to be active, continuing listeners. It's not something we just do once. It's not as if we're sort of listening whilst flicking on the mobile phone, going through apps as someone's talking to us. There's a danger that is listed there in chapter 2, verse 1. We are easily distracted. We can drift away. Uh, The Boston Police Department had this incident where they had just purchased a brand new 27-foot-long intercept patrol craft worth about $250,000, and it slipped away from the harbor point in a heavy rainstorm. It was missing for a few, uh, few hours. The officers who were assigned to looking after it didn't keep an eye on it. It floated away. They found it banged up under a bridge near Fort Point Channel, and it had caused $75,000 worth of damage, and itself totally damaged. Not a good day at work, is it? Try explaining that to your boss. Well, I thought the rope was tied, but obviously not. But the cost of not paying attention to Jesus is eternally damaging, eternally damaging. How more just is the judgment and punishment on those who disobey the life-giving creator? That's what the pastor's wrestling with. The writer here feels that and wants his friends, his church family, those who are outside the church to know that, pay attention. And as Landon mentioned, you know, there's so much busyness in the run-up to Christmas, so much busyness in life. I mean, where's 2021 gone? I can't believe we're here in December on Wednesday. I'm like, man, alive. So much has happened. So much busyness. It's easy to be distracted from what God says, his message to us, his word for us today. Not just on Sundays, but throughout the week. It's so easy to lose that, isn't it? I just want to um, highlight one resource that I've used in the past during the season of Advent. Um, It's something that John Pipe has put together. Um, You can get this resource just by signing up as an email, and it's there, desiringgod.org. 
Um, there's also uh, another Advent resource that I noticed, Tear Fund, who are a social relief and development agency, uh, Christian-based. They're doing a, an email-type reflection with prayer needs that will take us on a global perspective throughout um, Christmas and Advent. Please use uh, those resources, both at desiringgod.org and uh, Tear Fund's website. But don't do nothing. Don't do nothing. Don't settle for putting the equivalent of cotton wool in your ears and blocking out God's word. We need to pay attention because we see who is in charge. And that's really the next section, verses 5 to 18. And the first thing I want to point out is that as humanity, we've been given a unique purpose. Have a look at where the pastor turns his attention. Back to this question of who's in charge of the world. And the answer that he goes for is here in the book of Psalms from the Old Testament. We'll see throughout Hebrews, the writer keeps referring to Old Testament scripture and particularly the Psalms. In Psalm 8, which is quoted there in verse um, 6 onwards, it was written by King David, one of Israel's most celebrated kings. It reflects why are we here? He's reflecting this. Even King David seems to have a moment where he's just struck by the smallness and insignificance of human beings. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man, that's another way of talking about a person. A son of man that you care for him. Are we just dust floating on an infinite nothingness? But David sees a clear reason for why God cares about us. Yes, angelic beings may be more supreme, they weren't given the honor of ruling over creation. You made them a little lower than the angels, human beings a little lower. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. You see, Psalm 8 resonates with the opening chapter of Genesis, with God making men and women in his own image and calling them to rule over his creation. And as image bearers, we all reflect something of him that is unique to each of us. Each of you are little glory mirrors, reflecting glory. And you have, because of God's purpose, unique ways of doing that, unique gifts, insights, talents. God's plan meant that humans would be fruitful and creative, spreading his glory across the world, cultivating the planet as workers in partnership with him. In verse 8, we read, In putting everything under them, that is humanity, God left nothing that is not subject to them. You see, no part of creation was off limits to our stewardship. Agriculture and geology, farming and families, building and crafting, music and art. The opportunities to order and cultivate stretched out before humanity. A world of possibility. But the sad reality is that we're not ruling the world well, are we? Just look. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them, we're told. Yes, we have remarkable abilities. We've accomplished some amazing things. So we're, we're able to exercise an enormous range of rule in this world, from, you name it, food production, healthcare developments, seeing the technology and science has been put to good use during the pandemic. We've got telecommunication systems that are mind-blowing, grander engineering products, space exploration. But 
Do we rule everything well? No. The world isn't under our control. We see that, don't we? Environmental disasters, wars, conflicts, numerous inequalities, economic injustice. We have often used power for selfish reasons and to harm. You see, the interesting thing is we're ruled by our passions and emotions. We don't do a great job of controlling ourselves. And our sinful rebellion against God has impacted the creation he's entrusted to us. So can it be subject to anyone? Or is it just chaos and futility? Is there any hope? Is there a lasting answer? Well, if this was a Marvel film, at this point, Tony Stark would say something sarcastic as he sort of gets the Iron Man suit encased around him and fires up. Captain America would fling the shield on his back. Uh, Black Widow would jump into a shuttle and start the engines up and head off to dive in and sort out the problem. But we know those heroes don't exist. There's always a job left undone. And whether it's the stories of Marvel and DC, or whether it's Lord of the Rings and other great works of literature, whether it's the medical dramas like ER and House, they in some way are all retelling the, the gospel that we are in fact a world that's desperately in need, desperately broken, it needs fixing. And we're looking for a savior to provide that fix. And Hebrews wants us to see clearly who that is. Look at verse 9, if you're following it uh, in, on your phones or in the Bible. Verse 9, but we see Jesus. We see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might test, taste death for everyone. For just over 30 years on earth, the eternal Son of God was made a little lower than the angels, for he was clothed in human flesh and blood. And it's at that point we see a miracle here. God's son descended for us. God's son coming down for us. Just think about the implications of that. In adding his full humanity to his divinity, Jesus willingly chose to be limited by time and space. He grew tired and weary. He worked hard and enjoyed good friendships. He had to put up with noisy neighbors and grumbling family. He had pain. He felt sadness. And at the same time, he began to show what humanity was meant to be like. He used his powers for the benefit of the weak and dispossessed. He tamed nature by calming storms. He set free those oppressed by demonic powers. He mended the brokenhearted, those with broken bodies. But even then, not everything was subject to Jesus. The Romans still ruled. The devil's power still gripped people. But this all changed on the cross. In the eternal mind of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, the best plan to save us had the cross at the heart of it. The best plan had suffering right at the center of it. Verse 9, he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Again, just think about how mind-blowing it is. The perfect son 
descended to earth, humbling himself to an ordinary life in an insignificant region of the Roman Empire, willingly enduring a humiliating death, verse 17, that he might make atonement literally propitiation, taking God's wrath away at our sin for the sins of the people. Now, God didn't do this under compulsion. He wasn't forced to. The motivation was unmerited, unconstrained love. This rescue fitted God's character. It spoke of who God is and is true to his holiness. Again, we're presented here with the fact that sin cannot be ignored. This brokenness, this fatal flaw we all carry cannot be ignored. It's costly. Justice had to be satisfied, and that's why the Son lovingly lowers himself to raise us up to glory, to bring us into God's family. And in fact, the writer uses just three pictures that we'll look at to help us understand how Jesus achieves this original person, uh, purpose, God's original purpose, to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And we see that first in verse 10. Uh, when speaking of Jesus, the pastor puts it like this. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. And that word for pioneer has the meaning of a trailblazer, a hero. So the first thing we see is that Jesus is the greatest pioneer. He's the pioneer who goes on ahead of the main group to secure the route home. The pioneer is the one who cuts the path. They put their life on the line in order to bring everyone else to safety. And when we read that Jesus was made perfect through suffering, now this doesn't refer to any lack of ethics in him or moral imperfection. To be made perfect, that is, he is rather fit for purpose. This route of going through suffering, of lowering himself, was the only right way for him to identify as our savior. He had to go through it, and he did it sinlessly. He did it without compromising his righteousness. And if he didn't do that, then he couldn't be our savior. He couldn't really represent us. Amazingly, can you see what that means about the God of the Bible? This God gets the hands dirty. This God is not distant. He is the one who's been through this life of ours as one of us. And that is why he can call us brothers and sisters. That is, the picture here is of singing songs in the congregation. Jesus is there singing our names. Here is my family fulfilling a prophecy from uh, Isaiah in the seventh century and saying, now you really see that these are my children from every nation. You see, Jesus didn't hide behind his divinity, using it as a shield from life on earth. What's more, he came back from the grave to show the path he has cut to his heavenly home will bring us home. This route works. That's why he says, I am the way. And isn't it beautiful that he is not ashamed to call those who trust that way, that route, his 
brothers and sisters. Doesn't that change everything for us? If you wanted to know how to get through the Amazon or the Siberian deserts, then I reckon following Aunt Middleton of, uh, you know, celebrity hero stuff or who dares wins type challenge um, guy, Aunt Middleton, or Ray Mears, who isn't probably as fit as him, but certainly knows what berries to eat if you're stuck in a wood. Following Aunt and Ray would probably do well if you were stuck in the Amazon or Siberian. But to get through this life, into, into eternity, through this world and home to God's kingdom, then there's only one person to follow. And I'd implore you, if you're going, if you're going to say, Jesus, Pete, you need to be quiet. <laughs> I've still got tons of questions. And I'd just come back to you and say, look at him. Come with your questions. Pay attention to what he says. Dig deep, because he said... His life was given so that you could be a son and daughter of God. The second picture we get is the great liberator, verses 14 to 16. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of sin. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Again, the people of faith who stand in that line and say, yes, I trust this liberator. Just at the age of 10 years old, Natasha Kampuch, you might remember this story, was snatched off the streets on her way um, to school in the suburb of Vienna by a guy called Wolfgang Pricklob. And he held her for eight years as a prisoner in his home. It's so distressing, so terrifying. In a, a tiny, windowless cell, that's all she knew for eight years of her life. And mercifully, she, she was out, um, she seized the opportunity to escape, and she did. And, and they have made a film about her, she's written books, she, she does speaking now, and, and she's involved in various um, charity organizations as well. But it's a terrifying situation to be in. Those stories horrify us, don't they, when we hear them on the news? But the pastor writer here, brings home to us another terrifying spiritual slavery. It's one that we kind of ignore on a day-to-day -day basis, I think, but it's one that the whole humanity is subjected to. The kidnapper is Satan. He's the one who exercises hold over people using the fear of death. And, but his power is limited. It isn't equal to God, and yet it needs to be broken. And we're powerless as people to break it. Now, I appreciate many ignore the reality of death, even with what we've been through in the pandemic. We still want to brush it away and, uh, and hide it. We want to try and sweeten it in some way as well, thinking of maybe meaningful alternatives. I was listening to the comedian Rob Beckett recently, and he does this thing where he's talking about parenting with his friend Josh Widdicombe. And he was sharing that his three-year-old daughter uh, had just started a conversation saying, what happens when we die? And as they were in a park, uh, Rob said, well, you just grow into a tree, and then you're born into a new baby again. And uh, she sort of took that answer. And his co-host, Josh, replied, oh, so I see you went with reincarnation. And Rob responded, yeah, there was an expletive, which I've deleted, but um, yeah, why not? 
It's, it's a nice one, isn't it? Yeah, said Josh. And we don't know it's not true. And then Rob said, honestly, oh, as, as a parent on these questions, I, I'm just sort of freewheeling and improvising. Uh, I'm that sort of kind of parent. And I haven't really given those questions much thought. And then the chat moved on, on to other stuff. But the audacious truth that Jesus states is he is the liberator. You don't need to improvise. See what he says. And, and to be clear, we should fear physical death and spiritual death. It is right that the penalty for our rejection and rebellion against God should fear us. It should raise questions. But what if there was someone else who paid the price on our behalf instead? Of course, he would have to be one of us. A human being perfect in his righteousness before God, but one who could take the price of our sin on himself. And more than that, he would have to be someone who is more than a human being, a representative, someone who could pay for our infinite sin against a perfectly holy God. And Hebrews 1 and 2 makes clear that the Lord Jesus Christ is that perfect saviour. And we see here it's God's love for us again as Abraham's descendants. We are more privileged even than spiritual beings like angels that cannot be redeemed. And so for those who trust in Jesus, those who follow him, the power of evil is broken. There is no grip the devil has on those who are Jesus's. That fear is melted by the secure love of Jesus Christ. That is what we enjoy. And death that was once a dungeon is now transformed into a doorway. It's a doorway into glory. The Bishop um, Burgrave, he was a bishop of Norway. Um, he was once asked, how can you explain death? And he tried with this story which I think picks up on something of the confidence we have. He said that one day a farmer took a little son um, to visit a village. He took his little son with him on this trip, and on the road there was a, a swift stream that was flowing, and there was a very rickety bridge across it. It was narrow, it was broken in places, and, and they crossed the river. But when they arrived at the village, they did the business, whatever, saw family, but then evening set in and it got dark and they started home and the boy remembered that shaky bridge, that river crossing and was absolutely petrified and frightened, began to cry. You know, dad, how are we going to cross this river? There's no daylight. How are we going to do it in the dark? His father just scooped up his son and carried him, holding him close to his chest. And in a few minutes, the little lad was fast asleep on his shoulder. And when he awoke, he was at home, the morning sun streaming through the window of his bedroom. And the bishop said, that's what it's like to die in some ways. Dying is going to sleep and awaking at home with our heavenly father. It is entering the quiet rest of God. You see, with Jesus as our pioneer of salvation, as our liberator from the power of death, we truly have nothing to fear. He is with us all the way. So do we live in this reality? Does it shape our daily lives? Do we apply this freedom of the gospel to our hearts and minds? 
Are we motivated by it to live courageously, to live more generously? Does it settle our anxieties day by day? Is it the rock we come back to when we're fretting? And then we see, finally, in verses 17 to 18, that Jesus is the greatest sympathizer. Verses 17 to 18. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Well, don't you feel the encouragement there, that connection, when you meet someone who has been through something you've gone through, an experience that's similar, whether it's uh, the challenge of starting a new job, or the ups and downs of a house move, or an anxiety, or, or an illness you've been through. That when you meet that connection, that meet that person, and there's a similarity there, it helps, doesn't it? It can be really encouraging that we can get that wisdom, that understanding, that comfort from someone. And I think one of the most radical things you can read in the Bible is here in verse 18. Don't let it slip past you. Jesus knows what you're going through and not just knows it, but helps you in it. In the trial, this God is there. We want to say, no, no, God's not there. We want to believe the lie more quickly than the truth that he's been there through it so that when you go through it, you are not alone. Get this straight as Christians. The path to becoming more like Jesus goes through hardships because our Lord went through it. And that is a much better path than brief, superficial comfort. But here's the thing. Jesus isn't like a drill sergeant on the sidelines shouting at you as you're trying to crawl through mud or get yourself over an eight-foot-high wall with no help. He's not that drill sergeant just saying, try harder, do better. No. In his spirit, he comes in us and alongside us, an ever-present help carrying us through the trials, when you feel you might compromise your faith, when you feel you haven't got the strength to carry on, all you do is cry out, help me, Jesus. Be with me. I don't know about you, but that's the God I need. Not some impersonal cosmic force, not some useful self-help mindset attitudes, not a God that I must impress with rituals and gifts who then decides whether or not to help. I need someone who is not remote or cold or uncaring, but who is near, forgiving, who is faithful, who is strong, who is compassionate, who has been through the worst and come through it to say, I'm never letting you go. We started today by asking the question, how significant do you feel? Where do you place your value? Well, when you look at Jesus, you find your value. You see God's own perfect son descend to earth so that we can ascend to be with him. Who is with us, who sticks with us. The pioneer securing salvation. The liberator freeing us from the tyranny of death. The sympathizer who helps us in our daily lives. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the pioneer, the author of salvation. Thank you that you alone are fit for this work, for this job of being our saviour. Thank you you descended to the earth, that you suffered, died and rose again, and now rule so that we could be forgiven of our sin. Set us free, setting us free from Satan's power. Lord, give us a confidence that you will bring us into your glory. Help us in our weakness, not to move from the delight we have in you, but to go deeper into it and to enjoy the security and freedom of being in your family. Amen.